Today I get to wrap up the series, Who is God? We've done this for four weeks, just asking the question, who he is? And I want to take us to some verses in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament at the back uh, of the Bible. And I've referred to these verses previously. For me, these verses provide some of the clearest teaching on the Christian position when it comes to the question, who is God? So we're having a look at Hebrews chapter 1 and just the first couple of verses. And it says this, God's final word. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Hebrews is a letter that was written to a group of first century Christians who were in danger of giving up. Times were hard, and it was particularly hard to be a follower of Jesus. Many were facing real opposition and were suffering because of their faith. And so the writer seeks to encourage his readers to hold fast, to hold on to the hope that they said was theirs. But before the writer makes this appeal, he turns their attention not to their problems, not to those who are giving them a hard time, but to the one they said that they believed in. And he seeks to remind his readers of what they said they believed about him. This is really important to understand. Here the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers in the clearest possible terms who it is that they are doing the hard yards for. Hebrews asserts that the creator God has spoken to mankind through his son Jesus And that he's not just given information about himself, but God has shown himself to us. Hebrews states that down through the centuries, God has spoken through many different means and at many different times, but he brings his final word in Jesus. He brings his final word to us in Jesus because Jesus is the complete revelation. There is no fuller revelation than Jesus. God in a form we can see. Jesus is, according to the writer, the ultimate way in which God appears. The exact way. There is no greater, more accurate representation of God than Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. Verse 3 of that little reading says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The word being is sometimes translated as nature. The son Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. This is really important to grasp. In the message rendering of verse 3, it says this. This son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. One commentator states, how can the writer of Hebrews impress upon his readers the message of Christ's person? Firstly, he insists that Jesus bears the very stamp of God's nature. 
All the attributes of God become visible in Jesus. The stamp vividly represents the picture of an image on a coin or a medal. It exactly matches the picture on the die. The term here clearly expounds the unity of Christ's nature with God the Father, yet maintains the distinction of his person. The writer of Hebrews is clear. Not only does Jesus bring us the word about God, he brings us the final word. For the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory is a big statement. I heard Tim Keller uh, describe this as nosebleed Christology. Christology is the study of the person and the work of Jesus. He states that this is nosebleed Christology because it is so high. What he says about Jesus, what this writer of Hebrews says about Jesus is so astounding that it is hard to find any other place in the Bible where it says anything stronger. For the people of Israel... The glory of God was a visible and outward expression of the majestic presence of God. In the Old Testament, when Moses began to lead the Jewish people out of slavery, something appears. It's called the fiery cloud. It is in the form of a pillar. And at night, it is clearly fire. And in the day, it has the appearance of a cloud. It is so incredible so awesome, so powerful, that when it shows up at one point, it actually stops the pursuing Egyptian army in their their tracks. They are afraid. Later, it leads the nation of Israel through the wilderness, and it descends on Mount Sinai, and there is thunder, and there is lightning. No one is even able to touch the mountain, or they'll die. When the temple is dedicated during the reign of King Solomon, down comes the glory cloud. Down comes the fiery cloud. And anyone near cannot remain on their feet. They are overcome and overwhelmed by the glory of God. It is a form of God. It is God in a form that can be seen. A form that expresses God's brilliance, his power, his infinite, overwhelmingly shattering presence. And in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the ultimate form in which God appears. He is the exact representation of God. Years ago, I was involved in helping a program that was run by a bloke called Ross Farley. Ross Farley at that time was working for Scripture Union, and the program was called Wymus. It was a program that was training, um, through Scripture Union, was training chaplains and also people who wanted to work in the area of youth ministry. Ross had, prior to his work in Scripture Union, worked as the youth worker at Wynnum Brethren Assembly. Now, I say that just for all the brethos in the room. During his time at Wynnum Brethren, he had a very strong ministry in that local community. Most Friday nights, they had close to 600 young people turning up. And they were doing some groundbreaking stuff in the area of youth ministry. I remember one day, he clearly mentioned to me that I really needed to read a book that he'd just finished. It was a book that had just come out, and it was called The Jesus I Never Knew by a bloke called Philip Yancey. 
Now, I hadn't heard about the book, certainly didn't know anything about the author, but based on his recommendation, I chased it down and I read it. Yancey was a journalist. He'd been raised in a very strict, fundamental Christian home in the southern states of America. As a young adult, he even went to Bible college. But then he became disillusioned with the church and he walked away from church, he walked away from his faith and he followed the path of becoming a journalist. He worked for a number of major news organisations and covered a number of theatres of war, of conflict zones. He was in Beirut during the time when things were very, very difficult there. It was during that time he began to question again the whole deal about faith and about God. And he finally began a journey back to faith and then eventually to church. Yancey says that part of his journey was that he decided to put aside all his preconceptions and take a long look at the Jesus described in the New Testament. He approached this as a journalist. He seeked to obtain the facts, understand the context, and investigate all the implications. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says that the Jesus he got to know <clears throat> as he did his research and began writing the book was very different from the Jesus he had learned about in his Sunday school classes. In some ways, this new Jesus was more comforting. And in other ways, this Jesus was more terrifying. I want to say to you that I read that book and it had the effect on me of making me rethink. It caused me, it, it drove me back to read and reread the gospel accounts of the life and words of Jesus. It caused me to question and to seek to understand better the context, the culture, the religion, the time that Jesus lived in. And I found myself time and time again asking the question that Yancey poses throughout the book. If this Jesus, the biblical Jesus, came to reveal God to us, if he is, as the writer of Hebrews claims, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, what do I learn about God from what I read about Jesus? What do I learn about God when I read certain things in the Gospels about, that Jesus did and said? I cannot fully explain to you how significant this was for me in my understanding of who God is. I was challenged to look at Jesus and to seek to understand his Jewishness. I was forced to kind of think and comprehend his humanity, his emotions, his frustrations. And I was surprised when I put aside my own preconceived ideas. I would read Yancey and then I would go back to the Gospels and I would read again. And then I would read a commentary. I would read historical records and I would pray. This whole deal unsettled me. I would read sections in Yancey's book like this. This comes from the book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He, Jesus, seemed excitable, impulsively. He was moved with compassion or filled with a pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses. 
sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy, exuberance over the disciples' successes, a blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists, grief over an unreceptive city, and then those awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane and on the cross. This Jesus had a nearly inexhaustible patience for individuals, but no patience at all with institutions and injustice. He loved to praise other people. When he worked a miracle, he often deflected credit back on the recipient. Your faith has healed you. When a cringing woman offered him an extravagant act of devotion, and this woman was set on by pious, judgmental people, Jesus rose up in her defence and spoke strongly against them. At that stage in my life, those images and ideas certainly did not match with the Jesus I thought I knew. And certainly, those ideas and those images did not come into my thinking as I considered who God is. My Jesus, at that stage, was one-dimensional. He was tame, and he was predictable. The Jesus I began to encounter as I read and reread the Gospels with a new passion was anything but tame. Jesus became more, and he became better. And I found that more and more I wanted my God to be like Jesus. So the words of the writer of Hebrews affirm this central platform of the Christian faith. That Jesus of Nazareth was not just another prophet come to speak about God. He was and is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Last week, Josh reminded us that when the character and qualities of God go public for the world to see, this is referred as the glory of God. Jesus, who was, I believe, God with skin on, made visible the glory of God. He made visible the character qualities of Creator God. This is who God is. And the implications of delving deep into what this complete revelation about God means are simply amazing. I remember Gary Hills, who was a teaching pastor here at Hume Ridge for 10 years, would often state that our best look at God was to come by faith to the foot of the cross, the cross of Christ, and look up at the broken and bruised, bleeding man, suffering and dying for us. Our best look at God is to come by faith to the foot of the cross. This was a God who would willingly forsake, love, uh, willingly forsake power for the sake of love. A God who would set aside his divinity and make himself nothing. Who would take the very nature of a servant. Who would humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That God could do this that God would do this for the sake of love, is almost beyond comprehension. The cross redefines God. The cross redefines God. The gospel, states one commentator, are chronicles of Jesus' final week with increasingly long introductions. Introductions. 
the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are, are chronicles of Jesus' final week with increasingly long introductions. Each of the Gospels saw his death as the central mystery of Jesus. Only two of the Gospels mention the events of his birth. And all four offer a few pages on his resurrection. But each chronicle gives a detailed account of the events leading up to and including his death. This was the Son of God dying on planet Earth. This was the Messiah facing defeat. This was God getting crucified. Nature itself convulsed. The ground shook, rocks cracked, and the sky went black. And for those of us who sit this side of resurrection, we struggle to appreciate the impact of those days and of that death. I also believe that for those of us who come to this story after the resurrection, we can sometimes minimise the enormity of what occurred by Jesus dying. Yancey states, No theologian can adequately explain what took place within the Trinity on that day at Calvary. All we have is the cry of pain from the son who feels forsaken. Did it help that Jesus may have anticipated that his mission on earth would include such a death? Did it help Isaac to know that his father Abraham was just following orders when he tied him to the altar? What if no angel had have appeared and Abraham had have plunged a knife into the heart of his son, his only son whom he loved? What then? That's what happened on Calvary. And to that son... It felt like abandonment. We are not told what God the Father cried out at that moment his son died. We can only imagine. God the Son died so that we would know full forgiveness and complete reconciliation to God the Father. The Apostle John, writing some years after the crucifixion, says this. How great, how great is the love of the Father. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Our access to this place as children of God, our standing before God comes only because of God's nature, who he is. The Apostle John again sums it up simply by saying God is love. God's furious longing for us, his unmatched commitment to us, is displayed nowhere more clearly than at the cross. It is God loving without reservation. Brennan Manning wrote, We should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment, we are standing on holy ground. The more we ponder, the more we find ourselves agreeing with Billy Graham, who said, no human experience can fully illustrate the imputed righteousness of God as conceived by his infinite love. 
It is a mystery, incomprehensible and inexplicable. Like the mystery of the sun's heat and light, we cannot measure it or explain it fully. And yet we cannot live without it. It is against this backdrop of God's amazing love that I want to say two things as we wrap up. The first is that we often hear in church the idea that we should trust in Jesus. I want to say to trust in Jesus is to make a decision to accept that Jesus was telling the truth about himself, that he was the son of God, and it's to accept that he's telling the truth about everything else as well. To trust in Jesus is not just to trust him for salvation. As important as that is, to trust in Jesus is to believe that he's telling the truth about everything else as well. It is to accept that because of who he is, the very son of God and that his death on the cross was no accident but God's plan to provide a way for us all to be forgiven and made right with God. It is then to choose to trust him with everything else as well. That when he teaches that forgiving others is a better way to do life, then we trust him. And we begin the process of doing that, of putting into practice forgiveness. When he teaches that being generous with our lives and our resources is how we should strive to operate every day, we go about choosing to do that. When he says that caring for the widow, the orphan, the marginalised, the forgotten, when we care for them, it affects him. And it's so important that we do it. Then this is where we get up and go. We trust him on the basis that he's God. And he knows better than we do how our life should be lived. Too often over the years, I've heard People talk about the fact that they're trusting Jesus and I look at their lives and they don't look like they are. They've settled for just trusting Jesus as an evacuation plan to the next life, as an insurance policy. But they're not trusting him when it comes to everything else he said. To really trust Jesus is to trust that he tells the truth about everything. It is to pray, your will be done in my life, and we mean it. Trusting him, really trusting him, will have implications for what happens at the end of this service. Trusting him, really trusting him, will have implications on how you operate at home, with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents. Trusting him will have implications about how this week goes with your attitude and behaviour at work. Jesus in Luke 9, 23 to 27 is recorded as stating this. Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. 
my way to find in yourself your true self. What good would it be to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? I believe that the heart of God is affected by our trust. I believe that God is affected by our trust. He is looking for a radical surrendering of our will to him. It is a decision that we trust him more than we trust ourselves. It is a surrendering too. Surrender in this context is not as much giving up as giving to. Richard Rohr is a Catholic priest, a teacher, an author. And in his brilliant book, Breathing Underwater, he says this. But as we come to understand who God is, it becomes easier to surrender when we know that nothing but love and mercy is on the other side. It becomes easier to surrender when we know that nothing but love and mercy is on the other side. He goes on to say, though, I would say that what makes so much religion so innocuous, ineffective and even unexciting is that there has seldom been a concrete decision to turn our lives over to the care of God. We get to choose how we relate to God. And one of the ways, one of the things that affects um, how we're going to relate to him is what we think he is, who we think he is. My belief, based on what I've come to believe and understand about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, whom I believe is the beloved son of that God, is that God is trustworthy, that he cannot not love me, and that in this moment he loves me more than anyone else has ever loved me or ever will. My belief based on what I've come to understand about Jesus is that God will never love me anymore and he'll never love me any less than how he is right now in this moment. So we're going to wrap our service up now. The band are going to come forward. And this morning, I want to give you an opportunity. You might want to talk to someone about what it would mean for you to trust Jesus. You might want to talk to somebody about uh, what it might mean for you to take another step in trusting Jesus. So at the conclusion of our service, after the song, Jackson's going to wait down the front. So will Brandon on this side, Jack on that side. I'm going to ask Emma to wait down the front and I'll wait. If you would like us just to pray for you, we'll pray for you. But if during this time that we've shared, you've just got this kind of little niggle that maybe you want to talk to somebody, there's going to be no hard sell, no pressure. We're just going to give you an opportunity to talk about what it would mean for you to really trust Jesus, for you to really just surrender and let him be in charge. Over the next couple of weeks, a couple of the teenagers are choosing to be baptised. They've decided that that's a step they want to take, another step along in their journey with God to trust him more. That may be something that you've thought about but want to talk to someone about. The band is now going to lead us in this song, but would you please pray with me?
Father, we want to, um, for a moment, just thank you that you love us. Help us to believe that. Help us um, to grasp that in a stronger way. To let go of some of the things that have sometimes meant that we've doubted and uh, failed to really trust you. And I pray, Lord, that our understanding of who you are will grow and deepen. I pray, Lord, that we will understand that you cannot not love us. And right in this moment, um, right at this time, your love for us is real. Your love for us will never be any greater or any less. And Father, we just thank you that through Jesus, you have shown us who you are. And through Jesus, you've also shown us how incredible your love for us is. And we pray this in his name. Amen.